Welcome to the Airline Pilot Podcast, a new show from the Airline Pilots Association. I'm Corey Kuhn. And I'm Jen Bristol. This podcast will be a home for news, information, and tips for airline pilots to keep you up to date on what is happening in your union and the aviation industry around the world. In each episode, we're going to do a deep dive into the issues impacting ALPA members today. We'll be interviewing the experts so that you can gain a better understanding of what's happening on and off the flight deck. In the next few months, you'll hear from ALPA's national officers, international pilot leaders, labor leaders, and more. You know better than anyone that being a pilot is a unique career where policies, contracts, and regulations have a huge impact on your day-to-day life. The Airline Pilot Podcast is here to help shed light on the factors that impact your life and career. We are thrilled today to be joined by ALPA President, Captain Jason Ambrosi. Thank you. So this is our first podcast. You are our first guest on the first Airline Pilot Podcast. Why was this something that you felt important to do for our members? Well... I'll say, I'll admit that I was a a pessimist on podcasts a few years ago. And I'll give a shout out to Will at Alaska. He did a good podcast up there and, um, and, you know, told me the virtues of it and how his pilots listened. And and then we, we, under my time at Delta said, Hey, let's, let's start a podcast. And it turned out to be very, very, um, very popular. It was uh, it was kind of cool because even new hire classes, when I talked to a new hire class, would say, "Yeah, I listened to the podcast before they even arrived," and they would start listening to the podcast. So uh, it's part of uh, getting out there and getting more more bringing Alpa into the next generation, right? I think that's something that a lot of our members need to see that we need to up our game a little bit and get get ready for the new generation. And this is one of the media's that that people like. Um, not everybody's going to listen to it, but a lot of people are going to hopefully, if we do a decent enough job here, that people will will get engaged and and listen, and we're trying to find new ways to connect with our members, keep them engaged. Right? We need we need our members, uh, and our members need us. So uh, this is just one more step in the in that direction, and and we'll see how it goes. But I look forward to moving forward with the podcast and bringing on uh, you know new people, other national officers, committee folks, bring people in from different airlines and say, hey, you know, uh, tell us what's going on at, at Airline X and your property and how's your bargaining going? And that way, you know, we can learn a little bit more uh, about each other. Because I think one of the things I've noticed uh, was that, you know, getting in, you know, com- coming into this position was we have a lot of uh, us versus them maybe in some of our carriers. And, and I think that, you know, we're all stronger together. We say that it's part of the p- power of bringing Air Canada in. And we are certainly stronger together. And if we can break down that that us versus them barrier, and we can all kind of learn a little more from each other, we can we can bring everybody up. So, you know, might be a lofty goal, but we'll give it a try. Today, we're about 180 days into your role as Alpa president. What are your initial thoughts? I'll uh, just start with wow. So. Um, Spent a lot of time at the Delta MEC, uh, most recently as, as the Delta MEC chair. Very proud to have finished up a industry-leading contract and global scope and a lot of protections there. I thought that was, uh, you know, you you think that's a ton of work and, and, and nothing could be more work than that. But, you know, getting here and just seeing the sheer scope and magnitude of this organization, the, the amount of people involved, the amount of staff that work on the behalf of our members every single day, 
And uh, it's been great. It's very rewarding. Um, it's different. There's always different things. You know, at the at the MEC level, it's it's 99% negotiating and enforcing contracts, and then helping pilots. You know, when when they need to need support from from their their representatives. Where, you know, here we're dealing with legislation. We're dealing with the safety. We're dealing with everything. Everything that happens at the at the at the national level and still supporting our MECs to negotiate contracts and and enforce contracts and and bring in new members and and fight all the threats that are out there it's uh it is rewarding i'm 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 really proud to to have such a great national officer team here and um you know Wendy Tyler West uh Steve my EA uh you know Tim up in Canada and his his team we we we've got a great team all working together and 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 it's uh it's been very rewarding so far. Prior to taking office, you pledged to continue the fight to defend safety and win strong contracts for ALPA members. How would you measure the success of those two priorities today? Let's start on the safety side of things. Sure. Well, um, you know, we are founded on safety, scheduled with safety, right? So, um, this is it's front and center today with the FAA reauthorization. Um, we're we're testifying. I've testified in front of the House and the Senate uh, on the dangers of rolling back uh, safety. Uh, we've we've had press conferences with the 3407 families on first officer qualifications. Traveled to uh, the site of the flight 3407 tragedy and 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 remembered that with the families. Um, we've, we've done speeches at the Aero Club. We're out there, uh, just trying to advocate, uh, on, on behalf of, of our members and making sure that we're in the safest period in, in, in history right now. Since the 2010 FAA bill, uh, we've had a 99.8% reduction in, in fatalities at, at the 121. I mean, it's, it's incredible what we've achieved. We can't fall asleep at the wheel. We can't get, uh, you know, get complacent. We need to make sure that we we redouble our efforts, and that's part of this FA reauthorization because there's special interests out there that day in and day out want us to uh, or want uh, to roll back that that safety for the economics or put profits ahead of safety. So we'll we're out there advocating 100. Um, percent Another front that we're attacking is uh, reduced crew ops. There's a people out there that want to take pilots out of the cockpit. Obviously, we all know that the the best safety device on any airplane is two well-trained, at least two well-trained, qualified and, and rested pilots, and we're here to carry that message. We've teamed up with IFALPA and the ECA, European Cockpit Association, to launch a new campaign called Safety Starts With Two. Um, it's a global campaign against the threats of reduced crew operations. Candidly, here in the U.S., it, it's going to be difficult to get that started and take pilots out of the cockpit because of our regulations. However, if it happens around the world and other parts of the globe, that'll put pressure on regulators and such here. So we're, we're going to fight it everywhere in the globe, not just, uh, not just locally and take a, you know, proud to, of the team. We're taking more of a, a, a global approach and, and less of a, just what's happening here in the U S and Canada. I've been with Alpa for about 10 years now. And during this whole time we have, continued the drumbeat on secondary barriers. And this year, we finally, we got that over the finish line. What does that mean for a pilot? It's hard to believe it's been more than 20 years and we finally got a ruling. Again, not soon enough, 
they've got time. Hopefully, manufacturers and airlines will say, let's start doing it sooner than than what the the rule was. But it's you know it's about time. Shout out to the uh, acting administrator um, that that got the ball rolling, uh, and then acting administrator uh, uh, Trotberg for saying we're going to get this out there and, and make it happen. You know, we have legislative legislation pending as well on secondary barriers to get them retrofitted, right? Our cargo brothers and sisters still don't have primary barriers on many of their airplanes. It, I know that's hard to believe. Uh, it could be a case of uh, where they have foreign animal handlers sitting feet. I mean, a couple of feet, not 10 feet, a couple of feet from the flying pilots. So, you know, it's it seems so simple and, and crazy that they don't have that kind of a barrier. But again, that, that's something that we're, we're, we're trying to push legislation on and say, hey, look, they're, you know, cargo needs to have these barriers. You know, a foreign animal handler uh, may not even be a U.S. national that has access to tranquilizers for big game can be sitting just feet away from the pilots. So I know that seems unreal mm-hmm. but but it happens and, and it happens on a lot of the airplanes and then on like the industrial side about the strong contracts give us an overview of what's been going on past few months coming out of covid so many of us and so many of our carriers are, are negotiating you know we've had more than half of our our carriers in in bargaining um you know we we know that uh, kicked off by alaska and you know followed closely behind by JetBlue, Spirit, Hawaiian, the Delta TA, which I'm I'm very proud of. Uh, you know, all, all, several airlines. You know, we, uh, Amerijet. We've got Canadian carriers. Everybody's getting on board with or getting getting new contracts, and we're still continuing to help our brothers and sisters at FedEx. And hopefully, in the near term, we'll have a, a, an agreement at United that they can be proud of, and then push the bar higher to to help continue the the pattern bargaining coming out of COVID. Um, part of making the closing the gap for our Canadian brothers and sisters, obviously there is a, a gap there, and we need to close that gap. Um, yeah, I think we are going to be able to make that be stronger because we now have a unified voice in Canada. We were able to bring the Air Canada pilots into Alpa in May. Very proud of that. Um, and now we represent over ninety five percent of the, the pilots in Canada, and working together with the strength that Air Canada brings to the table and our Air Alpa Canada board. We'll be able to uh, push push higher with you know recent contracts at, at WestJet, and now Air Canada is going to begin bargaining. You you just mentioned that um, you were particularly proud of bringing Air Canada into the the Alpa family. Is are there any other moments over the past six months that stand out? Probably the you know at this point I would say the uh, the Air Canada. Uh, merger is is awesome. That is that is very very cool. I know that that's something that was been um, contemplated for the better part of a decade or more. So getting that through, uh, but there's a lot of great moments. I mean, just uh, the ability to get out in front and and, and represent our our members. Um, you know, I'll, quite honestly, I was quite nervous the first time I had to go sit in in Congress and and testify at the House in February and. In making it through there and and rising to the, to the challenge of of representing our our members was uh, you know that was that was something to be proud of. It was pretty cool. And then now kind of getting getting into the groove a little bit, and you know it takes a bit to, to realize what you know. At least I'm willing to acknowledge I don't know I don't know what I don't know uh, for lack of a better term. 
So figuring it out and and, and listening and and, and um, uh, you know moving forward on behalf of the members, which is a great segue. So earlier this year, you testified um, on our on Alpa's FAA reauthorization priorities. Today, Congress is actively getting ready to pass this really really comprehensive bill. It's hard to communicate how important this bill is to to people outside of of this industry. But when you were talking about it with pilots, how do you emphasize why airline pilots should care about the FAA reauthorization? Well, look, uh, it's incumbent on us to keep our profession safe and to make sure that that we are the gold standard of aviation. Um, we again, I, I'll reiterate that we've reduced passenger fatalities by 99.8 percent since the the 2010 bill, and and going back to the days where first officers and in regional aircraft are have 250 hours is is not in the interest of safety of of the traveling public uh, of of cargo of our fellow crew members, pilots, and flight attendants. You know, maintaining the standards. What the system is working right now, and the special interests, make no mistake, they, they're they out there trying to gain an economic advantage. They don't like the fact that, that the, that, um, you know, they don't, they don't like the fact that, that first officers have to have a significant amount of uh, experience to go to a, a regional carrier or 121 carrier because that drives wages up. I mean, they, they, they you'll hear all about a supposed pilot shortage, but the classes are full. Uh, you know, Endeavor's classes are full into next year. Several other regionals classes are full into next year. So, um, you know, they they have some uh, tights in the captain's seat while first officers gain experience. But no one's out there trying to suggest that they reduce captain qualifications. That that would that would be crazy, right? But they want to reduce first officer qualifications. Well, if you have plenty of first officers, why are you doing that? Because you want an economic advantage. There shouldn't be a second class or a second tier of safety for because you choose to live in a in a rural city or a town. You know, everybody deserves the same same level of of safety and same level of service. Uh, and we'll get back to there. The airlines have pulled out of a lot of those places because economics. They're making economic decisions. Some cities don't support service with a larger regional jet. They're parking a lot of the smaller fifty seat regional jets for economics. If they can make more money flying somewhere else, they're going to do it. So. It's not a pilot shortage. It's more about getting, you know, fixed EAS funding, right? If if the if the airline is supposed to fly there five times, allow them to work through the process and let them fly three times with a slightly bigger airplane, and then you're still offering service, right? So there's other there's other solutions to this problem, but the solution is not trying to use a loophole like SkyWest right now and uh, get around using 121 rules and use 135 rules so that the people that are um, living in these small and rural destinations don't have pilots with the same qualification standards as people that live in and or folks that live in um, in larger larger destinations. So for the pilot listening today, Alpa pilot listening today, FAA re- reauthorization, um, what can pilots do to help move the needle here? Get out there, do our call to actions. Make sure that you um, engage on on the issues and let them know that you're not going to tolerate rolling back safety. Um, we're here to hold the hold the gold standard at, at where it is. 
Okay, so we've talked a little bit about FAA reauthorization. For those pilots who are listening, who are familiar with Alba's work, we we have to talk about the age 67 issue. Yeah, this is a passionate issue on on both sides. Uh, lots of getting lots of feedback from from those that that would like Alpa to change its position, right? So, um, to clarify, I take direction from the board of directors. Alpa's board of directors unanimously um, voted for a strategic plan that contains language that says Alpa will oppose a, a raise in the retirement age. So this is not Jason's policy. This is not the national officer's policy. Um, this is not something we cooked up in a room up here. This is we're a member-driven organization, and when the members speak through their elected representatives, we are bound to follow that direction. Alpa policy was put in under the previous uh, administration. Then Alpa policy actually opposes a race to the retirement age. So we're doing our job. Now let's talk about it a little more broadly, right? So, um, you know, I get you, you're saying I'm safe at 64 and, uh, you know, 364 days, and then I'm 65 and one, and I'm not safe. There are plenty of pilots that can likely do, move on and, and, and fly beyond the age of 65. There are many that probably shouldn't. We don't know, all right? I keep getting asked for data. What's your data that I can't fly past 65? Tell me why I can't. Well, you know, the Europeans studied it and said, yeah, you, we shouldn't raise the retirement age. There's been no study here. There's no data to support raising the retirement age here. So factually, those that would like to raise the age, there's, there hasn't been any homework done. This is a safety regulation, right? There's a limit. It's the ICAO is the current standard, and there's a limit. If somebody wants to change a safety regulation, we'd normally require study require some kind of data to say that it's an equivalent or a better level of safety. There's been no no study. There's been no mitigation. What possibly just Congress and in their infinite wisdom have just decided that we're just going to raise it by two years, right? If somebody just arbitrarily said, you know, you can do, you know, ETOPS on one engine airplane, somebody go, whoa, whoa, what, show me some data and that, that that's an equivalent level of safety. Well, you know, the fact is they haven't shown that. And we are where we are. So Alpha's position is this, and we're taking, a, and you know, I'm I'm doing my job and supporting the membership. At the same time, you know, again, under the guise of a pilot shortage, uh, a member of Congress is is trying to raise the retirement age, um, and 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 do it without doing any any homework first. Uh, you know, the difference last time, the retirement age at the international standard was 65, so we were moving to match the international standard. This time, the the age is 65, so moving it is exceeding the international standard, and will create, uh, you know, further uh, exacerbate the training backlog because you'll have pilots that, first of all, our, most of our contracts don't contemplate a pilot that can't fly internationally. So some of the legacy carriers will have a significant problem because, quite frankly, they're going to, you know, they'll have pilots that can't fly on those airplanes, and then they'll have to come to the bargaining agent, us, and, and you know, in most cases, and say. Hey, we need to negotiate something that allows these pilots to displace back to a domestic-only category, and then those pilots will be either displaced or it takes up another training cycle for the for those pilots. I keep hearing, "Oh, IKO will just flip the switch. If if the U.S. does it, IKO will do it." It doesn't work that way. They're going to study it. They're going to put their homework in. 
ahead of time. Even if Ikeo thinks it's a good idea, it's going to be a couple of three years down the road. It's not going to be something that happens happens overnight. No, it sounds like an operational nightmare. Yeah, I'm surprised the airlines aren't more vocal about it. I know that uh, um, you know they they're trying to stay out of it, but um, you know uh, quietly they've said that this is a, this would be a training nightmare for them, and uh, and it would be expensive. You know, when you read the news, a lot of people are conflating. A lot of people are making the assumption that that when you reach age sixty five, you are unsafe as a pilot, and that's not at all what Alpha's position is. That's a good, that's a great way to put it. So is a pilot that's suddenly 65 in the day unsafe when they were safe two days earlier? You know, no one is saying that. But to raise the retirement age by two years without any risk assessment, without any data, without any study does add risk. There's a difference between saying something is unsafe versus something adds risk. And it's incumbent on us to minimize risk because, you know, reducing first officer calls adds a risk because now we have less experienced pilots. We're willing to say that that's the safety issue, right? In this case, we don't know. Well, we, you know, we don't know. So it, it is a risk. We're not here to say that pilots that are 65 in the day are unsafe, but it does, it's factually adding a risk to, to raise the retirement age without any, without any study. So, you know, that's a, that's a, a Congress thing. Yeah. And aviation safety has been built on avoiding risk, mitigating risk. That's that's absolutely correct. You know, it's just that it's more than just some congressman saying, hey, let's raise the retirement age because my brother wants to fly two more years, you know, calling it what it is. You know, it, 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 there's more to it than that. But again, I, the message isn't that some pilot that's 65 in a day is unsafe. The, the message is that, look, our members have opposed raising the retirement age. And quite frankly, without any research or study, it does add risk. Thank you for joining our first episode of the Airline Pilot Podcast. If any of the topics we covered today interest you, you're in luck. We plan to do deep dives on many of them in future episodes. If you have any questions or topics that you'd like us to cover in the future in future podcasts, reach out to us at podcast at alpha.org. We'll be back next month with interviews from EAA, Air Ventures, Oshkosh. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or find us on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Airline Pilot Podcast. Production copyright Alpa 2023. All rights reserved. <laughs>